Would you open your Bibles with me to Romans 4? Romans 4. Our text for this morning is actually verse 25, but I'd like to actually begin reading in verse 13, which as I shared in the first service may seem like an odd resurrection passage. I really just want to give you the context of Paul's particular point in verse 25 because he's, he's actually tying it back to the life of Abraham and Sarah. Matt just preached on this a couple of weeks ago, but these were people who, like us, were called to live by faith in the promises of God. And if you're not persuaded that God really has the power to do the things he's promised, even when those things require miraculous work on his behalf, then it stands to reason that your faith will never find a place to rest and you will struggle to believe that God is all that he says he is and that God does everything he says he will do. So though Abraham is not particularly a a resurrection character as we think of, he is a, a member of this greater household of faith that I trust you are a part of. Because God gave him promises, and and one of the Apostle Paul's points here in Romans 4 is that God's given us promises. Believe them. Believe them. So I want you to follow along as I begin reading in Romans 4 and verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Can I pause right there? Because this is going to tie in later. God didn't fulfill his promise to Abraham because Abraham kept God's law perfectly. That's the point he's making here, all right? So let's keep reading. For if, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, that is the law keepers who become heirs of God's promises, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, you raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. You have given the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ that we might be saved. 
Our prayer with the Apostle Paul is that you would open the eyes of our hearts, enlightening us so that we may know the hope to which you have called us, and that we may know what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and that we may know what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. Thank you that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, you have promised and ordained that it should be at work in us. Oh, Lord God, let that power work right now. Apart from that power, we won't understand what we need to understand. Apart from that power, we won't yield our hearts in faith, believing all your promises. Apart from that power, we'll never be able to love you as we should or love others as you have commanded. Apart from that power, we will not rest in the promise of eternal life, the promise of justification, the promise of forgiveness. So Holy Spirit, would you come to make our hearts alive to your word, that we would believe it, obey it, practice it, share it, and love it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Americans are serious about property rights, aren't we? And there are a thousand more signs that I could have chosen to put up here. No trespassing. Those are words that are communicated in a variety of ways, and sometimes humorously, and sometimes you're not sure, is that supposed to be funny, or maybe that's really serious? And you look at the sign on the left side of the screen, and you say, ha ha, oh, maybe not ha ha. <laughs> I shared in the first service that I have a, a friend from South Carolina who's now retired, but as a police officer, he worked for a number of years in undercover drug ops. And one of the special missions that they set up in the greater Greenville County area was up into what is called the Dark Corner. And the Dark Corner is called that for uh, legendary reasons. Long, long, long decades, if not hundreds of years of, you know, clandestine activity and pretty rough crowd. And my friend who went undercover, and they, they titled it Project Billy Bob. And, um, and he took on the persona of a Billy Bob. And if you're saying, what is a Billy Bob? That's someone who lives in the dark corner. And uh, that's someone who's very happy for the rest of the world to stay out. And John can tell stories, you know, all day long about the interesting characters that he encountered. And no doubt, how, I don't know how many no trespassing signs he had to walk by. And some of those were posted you know, they might not have said we're tired of hiding the bodies, but that was reality in the dark corner. And then you move through that and you see no trespassing without permission. Well, that's kind of confusing. So if you give me permission, is it still trespassing or am I okay? I mean, like, we, we should clarify that. Then the bottom right corner, sorry to you Disney fans, but there are people who, like, could care less, you know, what you think about Disney. Their property is not Disneyland and they're not interested in tourists. And then the top middle one kind of makes me laugh because some of you would be like, ooh, absolutely, that's me. Like, I don't want to see anybody. But if you bring Thin Mints, we'll make an exception. We're serious about our boundaries. And, you know, so is God. That's one of the things that he says here in Romans 4. In verse 25, in speaking of Christ, he was delivered up for our trespasses. Well, what's the Apostle Paul talking about? What what kind of no trespassing sign has God himself 
hung you know, on the boundaries. And where are those boundaries? Well, a trespass, biblically speaking, is simply overstepping the boundary of God's law. And if your mind starts to go to the Ten Commandments, that's a good place to start. And there's a summary of laws, ten of them, four that have to do specifically with how you are to love God. And most of these are stated negatively. Don't do it in this way. And so even the first four, which tell you how you ought to love God with all your heart, begin with no other gods. No other gods. God's not interested in being the first of many gods. He doesn't want to be placed in a pantheon. He wants to be your only God because he is the only God. Then the second commandment, no graven images. Because you and I don't have the kind of understanding where we could create an image, whether it be out of stone or wood, and say, oh, this is a really excellent representation of God. It's just not, and it dishonors him. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. And that's more than just profanity. That's actually living your life where you say, oh, I'm a Christian, but then you live in a way that it's not Christian. That's taking his name in vain. And the fourth, keep the Sabbath holy. It's one day that he's set apart. Then the next six have to do with how we love one another. And so God's very serious about loving one another. And he begins with the home and says, honor your father and mother. That's one of the first necessary acts of love. And then he goes from there to say, do not commit murder. and Do not commit sexual immorality. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. You take just those six and you begin to evaluate your life. And you start to look at the boundaries that God has set and I'm sure every one of you says, you know what, I'm, I'm a trespasser. Whether you've just stuck your big toe over the edge or whether you just rushed headlong over God's boundaries and borders, every single one of us here is a trespasser. Now, that may sound like bad news, but even for those who might say, well, you know, nine out of ten isn't bad. Actually, it is. And if you read, keep reading in the, into the New Testament, you'll come to a little book by one of the early uh, followers of Jesus named James. And in chapter 2, verse 10, he actually wrote, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all. It's just straight up pass or fail. God doesn't give you like a 90%, 80%, 70%, 60% even for passing. You either got to keep it all or you're guilty of all. Well, you know what? Everybody in the room then is guilty. I haven't kept all of God's laws at all points in my life. Neither have you. So a trespass is what a person has done in violating the will and law of, law of God by some fault, step, or failure. Sometimes we do it intentionally. Sometimes we do it unintentionally. We're just ignorant of God's boundaries. But it doesn't matter. God doesn't make exceptions, not even if you bring thin mints. Look at the text with me again, though, because there's something that makes us really hopeful lest we despair saying, I'm a trespasser, I'm going to be shot on sight. Like God's just going to pile up one more body in his backyard. No, actually, there's something really good here. Look at Romans 4.25. It tells us that he was delivered up for our trespasses. And it uses terminology here that is, that is spoken of persons who've actually been delivered over, sometimes with evil intent, to another power or authority. It's what happened to Jesus throughout the, the betrayal and crucifixion account. Do you know Judas delivered him up? And that word deliver up is actually inter, um, uh, translated in another place as betrayer. He had evil intent. 
Judas delivered him up for 30 pieces of silver. You keep reading and then you find out that the Sanhedrin delivered Jesus up because of their envy. Now that gives you motive. It doesn't tell you to whom they delivered him, although you read the story and you find out to Pilate, set him before Herod. There's a third use of this term in in the crucifixion account where Pilate actually delivered Jesus up when the crowd was crying, crucify him, crucify him. He delivered Jesus up to the crowd to appease them. He's afraid a big riot's gonna break out. But Paul's not referring to Judas or the Sanhedrin or Pilate in this particular passage when he says he was delivered up for our trespasses. No, it becomes crystal clear in the flow of Paul's letter that he is speaking of the Father. Think about this. We read Friday night from Isaiah 53, a passage that tells us it pleased the Lord to crush Messiah. Now that almost offends us because you think, what kind of father would do that to a son? Well, these are extraordinary circumstances. There's an extraordinary work that God the Father is doing. Just a couple of chapters beyond where we are in Romans 4, Paul wrote in Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, and there's our terminology, he delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The Father, the Father is the subject of this act of delivering up Jesus Do you know there are other New Testament scriptures, though, that speak of of Jesus giving himself, though? Not only do we have Romans 8, 32, the Father giving him, but in passages like Romans 5, verse 2, the Bible tells us that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Nobody took his life from him. Not even the Father took it from him. He laid it down, delivered himself up, Then as Paul goes on in chapter five to make a strong, one of the strongest appeals in all the scriptures for Christian husbands in particular to love their wives, the comparison that he makes is to the love that Christ has for his church. And he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Gave him over to the evil intentions and purposes of the Romans and the Jewish leaders of that that insane crowd who called for his crucifixion and execution. Jesus was delivered up by the Father of his own will for our trespasses. What are your trespasses? As I ponder that, it's difficult because there are some things that I'm fully ashamed of and in a sense knew better, certainly know better now. There are things that I'm ignorant of, not even aware of how I've offended God and crossed his barrier. Then there are other things I've even just forgotten. My memory's not sharp enough But the good news of Romans 4 is that the Father, in concert with the Son, delivered him up for our trespasses. That is, he took our place on the cross. And God the Father treated him as if he had committed those violations. As if he were the lawbreaker. As if he were the one who had given himself over to covetousness and greed and lust and anger and murder, idolatry, sin of every kind. 
All of it was placed upon Jesus and the Father poured out his holy wrath. It wasn't just a divine temper tantrum that took place when Christ died on the cross. No, it was the intentional, just, holy outpouring of wrath. Wrath that had accumulated from groups like this. Wrath that had accumulated in nations and far off places that we've never even been to or imagined. Think of how many millions and millions of people through the ages have rebelled against God and trespassed, gone beyond his boundary. Think of the accumulated wrath for all of that being poured out on Jesus, the innocent one. It's a spectacular and mind-boggling reality. Jesus was delivered up by the Father for you and me. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? Look again at verse 25. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now let's talk about justification for a minute. What does it mean to justify? Well, this picture struck me for various reasons. It put a little kind of a dictionary definition, a working understanding there. Justification or justifying has to do with an action or sometimes even words that would show something or someone to be right. Even the dictionary I pulled off the shelf gave several examples, some negative, some positive, and we often end up in situations where we want to justify ourselves. And in my mind, this picture captures something that uh, some of us may or may not have experience in the context of marriage, right? Like, how, what do you think this husband is saying to this wife in the context of justifying himself? Well, you say, well, to answer that, I'd have to know what the problem is. Yeah, but I, I kind of imagine the conversation might be going something like this where something happened, he shouldn't have done, he knows it, and the wife is just like so done with him already, and he's offering a weak, a weak defense, and maybe he says something like this. You know, as if kind of it's her fault leaving him unsupervised or, or whatever. Now, that's a humorous illustration of, of justification. Like, you can't hold me responsible because, or you misunderstood what I said, or that's not actually what I did. So, so there can be a, a legitimate use of justification. Even in our courts of law, we recognize that, but... Sometimes we begin to try to figure out ways to justify ourselves, and in particular when it comes to this realm of our sin and our failure and our, our rebellion against God's law or even our disagreement with civil law, and we have this, this inner compulsion to justify ourselves. And I want to speak to that for just a moment because many times we seek an in, a kind of internal justification, like you create your own justification. And whether you use the term self-justification or self-affirmation, which might be a little more positive spin on it, this is where many of us live our lives. And we justify our thoughts and our words and our actions in light of what we believe to be true about ourselves or what we believe to be true about our relationships or what we believe to be true about our world. And if you can fit all that together, you can, you can justify almost anything that you say or think or do. But self-justification has limited power, particularly when the opinions and voices of others begin to carry greater weight. 
And so that's where if a crowd gathers against you in reality or even in your perception, you may suddenly feel your justification of self crumbling under the weight of those other voices. And so while sometimes internal justification works for a while, it doesn't carry as great a weight as an an external justification or finding that kind of affirmation outside of yourself. It feels good when someone says to you, you are amazing. I've never known someone as talented as you. You feel like, okay, that helps. I've always felt I was more talented than anybody else I know, but (laughs) for you to say it about me, well, that's even better. So there's an external justification of sorts, and sometimes we even solicit or even manipulate others into saying things that make us feel justified. We crave the affirmation of other people, and sometimes we idolize it. And if you actually find yourself continually seeking the affirmation of others and, and you've kind of developed the skill for soliciting you know, those, those words of affirmation or justification from other people, th- this is a really important word for you f- from Romans. Where do these two options leave us, though? If you are seeking to self-justify or you are looking for the people around you, whether it be family or close friends or coworkers, you're, you're never fully sure and secure, are you? And there are kind of two extreme places that'll put you. And when I say extreme, it's not like these are rare or experienced. Like you're probably headed in, into one or both cul-de-sacs, I'll call them. You know what a cul-de-sac is, right? You drive in and you gotta turn around and get out. The problem is if traffic backs up behind you, you're stuck in that cul-de-sac. There's no exit. And the one can lead you into the cul-de-sac of fear. The other option is pride. Fear is that people will actually know you for who you are. Because when we're really honest with ourselves, we recognize we're, we're deeply broken, sinful. My record of trespassing is uglier than I would want anybody to know. And so if it's all up to me to justify self, I realize I can't do it. And if it's up to you, that only goes so far because when I'm left alone with my, with my own guilt feelings, it just, you know, thank you, but your words only carry me so far. So, so that puts me in a place of saying, I don't want you to know me, see me for who I really am. And so you live in this condition of fear. And you can put a smile on it, and you can dress it up, and you can learn the local language of whatever community you're a part of that, that kind of gets you by, but oh, fear just dominates your heart. Fear that you'll be found out. Fear that somebody will catch you. The other end is pride. And that's where you develop this mentality that says, you know, I, I actually am doing pretty well and seem to be really successful and in comparison to everybody else. I, I think I'm actually a really good example of righteousness. And so you want everyone to know your best stuff. And so you have to remind people. And you can try to do it with an air of humility or uh, whatnot, but at the end of the day, it's, it's just an, elf, it's a, an effort to self-justify. As I was thinking through some of these particular points, it struck me that often one of the telltale signs of this fear and pride is contempt. It can be contempt for self. It can be contempt for other people. If you are in the grip of this fear that people will know you, 
in all of your weakness and sinfulness as a trespasser, sometimes you can actually beat them to the crossroads by expressing contempt for yourself. I was actually thinking right before the service started that you know sometimes one of the ways that this sometimes emerges is, is a person will say, well, I just can't forgive myself. Oh, and I know what we're saying when we express that, but that's actually not gospel language. You can read from Genesis to Revelation. The Lord never says to any individual, never says in any particular passage, you need to learn to forgive yourself. But when we say that, we're often trying to tell people, I feel really badly about what I've done, and I, I hope that you will say to me something that will relieve some of that guilt or shame or fear that I'm wrestling with right now. You know what this person desperately needs who's expressing that contempt for self? They need to receive the forgiveness of Jesus. They need to believe that Jesus paid it all by his blood on the cross. Not that somehow by their contemptuous language for self, they can, they can pay penance, make amends, atone for their sin. See, that would be a real example of contempt for self. But sometimes it expresses it in contempt for other people. And, and we, we find that their lack of discipline or their lack of commitment or their uh, a lack of of ability just to complete a task. You know, it drives us insane. Why can't they be better at it? And, and we've created these artificial standards that we hold other people to, but the, that low-grade fear kind of in the back of our minds or deep in our hearts is that somehow people will find out we, we can't even achieve the standards we put for everybody else. And so whether it's the cul-de-sac of fear or the cul-de-sac of pride, they both they both often include contempt. There's a third way, a really beautiful option, and that, again, brings us back to our text. Look at Romans 4.25 one more time. Jesus was not only delivered up by the Father for our trespasses, but Jesus was raised for our justification. Now, yes, Paul is writing about a a biblical concept, but it actually bleeds into the other areas of life, spreads, not just bleeds, it it spreads into all areas of life where we are fighting so hard to find justification, whether it be through self-affirmation and talk and exercises or whether it be through the community we're, we're a part of, but God's justification creates a whole new line of thinking and ultimately living. Now, most religions call upon the individual to do the work of self, to do the work of justification, self-justifying, and primarily through obedience and law-keeping. That's part of the reason we read the earlier portions of Romans 4, because Paul is driving home the point that Abraham received the promises not because he kept God's law perfectly, but because he believed. And, And we don't have the same life scenario that Abraham was living in at that particular moment, but we're on the same path of faith, faith in the promises of God. That's why most other religions, though, that call the individual ultimately to work out his or her uh, justification before God puts the pressure on the individual to show yourself worthy. Obey enough, sacrifice enough, give enough, work hard enough, long enough, and maybe, maybe you'll make it into heaven. But what are you going to say to God when you stand before him one day and, and he's held up that perfect standard of his law and he says, if you, if you break the law in one part, James 2.10, you're guilty of all. 
I, I say this somewhat facetiously, but if you, if you import your own works of, of righteousness and obedience to the law, you're like the person who shows up in the doorstep and says, I know it says no trespassing, but I got thin mints. God doesn't accept anything but the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And you're certainly not gonna be able to blame God, you know, like the foolish husband saying, you know what, God, I, if I could just say one thing, I, it's not my fault because you left me unsupervised on planet Earth for all those years. Romans 3.19 says plainly that in that great day of judgment, every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable by God and to God. That's a terrifying prospect if you're a lawbreaker and you don't have the right defense. Now, Paul has just written in Romans 3.26, God justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. And then in Romans 3.28, he wrote that people are justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, that ought to be really good news because you're thinking, wait a second. So they're you're telling me there's not justification by my own obedience or works of the law. Exactly. But it seems like this is pointing us in the direction that there is justification for people like us apart from, apart from works. Justification comes by faith. Yes, exactly. You're getting it. Faith in Jesus. Yes. And in chapter 5, verse 1, if your Bible is open to Romans 4, you're, you're just one verse above that. Look at what he says there. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this little section we're working on comes right between, right between some, some really powerful promises and assurances that God fully intends to offer the justification you and I need. It's just not by means of your works and your effort. It's all tied into who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. God never asks you to justify yourself in order to receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. As a matter of fact, if you, if you try to justify yourself before him, you forfeit the true justification and forgiveness. That's why Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees when they were grumbling about his eating with sinners, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, you could, you could read that and think that Jesus might be acknowledging two categories of people on planet Earth, the righteous who don't need the gospel or salvation and sinners, or the healthy and the well, because he says, you know, the, the healthy people don't need a physician, but those that are sick. But the reality is, if, if you take the full context of his preaching and teaching, you realize he's saying the whole world is sick. The whole world is in need of a physician. The whole world is sinful and in need of a righteousness that they can't produce in themselves. The problem with the scribes and Pharisees is they, they couldn't see that. They were blinded by their own self-righteousness. I pause for a moment and ask a really important question. How do you view yourself this morning? Through the lens of God's word and through the eyes of Jesus? Or have, have you produced some kind of self-talk and self-affirmation that says, I'm okay? in part because I'm not as bad as that dude sitting next to me. If you people only knew about the dude next to me, you know, you'd nominate me for you know, whatever person of the year you think you should be nominated for in comparison to that guy. The problem is that God's not comparing you to the person next to you. Now, Paul says, remarkably, he was raised for our 
justification. Now what is, from God's perspective, when, he's, when, he's, when he begins to unpack justification, there are three components to it. And this is gonna appear as kind of a technical definition, but I'm gonna go through it slowly enough that I hope you'll say, wow, 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 all three points. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God, and you say instantaneous, like when did that happen? It happens when you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ. But there, at that moment, there are no less than three things. There's actually a, a whole world of things that God does in addition to this. But with reference to justification, there are three really exciting parts of that. The first is, when you and I put our faith in him, in the death of Jesus and his resurrection, the first thing he does is to count all of your sins and mine as being forgiven. And they really are forgiven. And count in, in the sense of an accounting term, like, he, he wipes the book clean uh, of all those outstanding debts you owe. It's just, it's just gone. The blood of Jesus has that kind of power, so he counts our sins as forgiven. Number two, he counts Christ's righteousness as belonging to you. Christ's righteousness. Was that perfect righteousness? Oh, yes, in every way. Was there ever one moment in the life of Jesus, from birth until he cried from the cross, it is finished and breathed out his last. Was there ever one moment where there was so much as a sinful thought, let alone word or deed? And the answer is no. He was the sinless one. And so all of that righteousness of his life, God now credits to your account. So he not only wipes the debt of your sin clean, he credits you with the perfect righteousness of Christ. I mean, that, that, that's better than hitting one of these billion-dollar lotteries. You could never exhaust the account of Christ's righteousness. And then number three, God, as a judge, stands over your life and makes this mighty declaration you are now perfectly righteous in my sight for Christ's sake. That means you can't be prosecuted for any of your sins again. That means nobody can walk into God's court in heaven and say, oh, let's talk about so-and-so and bring an accusation that will stick. That means you are free. Free. Now, it may not mean, you know, magically all the day-to-day -day struggles with sin and temptation go away. We're all still wrestling at that level. But do you see how this changes your whole identity as a person and puts you in a completely different place, a base of operation, if you will, where now you're living life out of this place of security and strength, a full acceptance of justification. So here's the difference. And, and you should read on to Romans 6 to see this. This spiritual union with Jesus meant that when he died on the cross, the old you, the, the, the old nature, if you will, dominated by sin, enslaved to all kinds of desires and appetites, truly died with Jesus. And as sure as his dead body was placed into a grave, you, the old you, died with him. This is all by faith. And then resurrection morning, just as a, a, a living Jesus came out of the grave, there is also a new you raised with Jesus, and that's where Paul will go on to say, raised in order that you and I should walk in newness of life. We don't have to return to the old ways of thinking, speaking, and living, and we must not. A new you emerges 
with Jesus from the grave. And so now the Lord says, okay, I, I've cleared the, the record of your debt. I've counted or credited all the righteousness of, of Christ to your account. I've declared you to be perfectly righteous for my sake. I know your life is not gonna be perfect until you are in my presence, glorified, fully transformed, but would you please start living like a transformed person because you are. And so I never excuse my sin, and you must not excuse your sin, but when I do sin, there should be something in me. And, and often it's the Holy Spirit who says, hey, hey, new people risen with Christ don't say words like this. That's not who you are. Stop it. And so I humble myself under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and I say, please forgive me. That was sinful for me to say that, think that, do that. I know that is not consistent with a new birth. Would you please cleanse my heart afresh and would you now strengthen me to live as the new person you have made me to be? That's a totally different orientation. That's the power of God's justification. So now I'm not coming to you saying, please affirm me. Please tell me what a good guy I am. Please tell me I'm the best preacher you've ever heard. Please tell me you know, that I'm your best friend and you want to take me on your vacation with you this coming year. Please, 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 please. I'm not needy like that anymore because God has stepped into my world and said, you're mine. I delivered up my son for you and I raised him from the grave so that you would know I mean all that. You are justified. I also don't have to have these little pep talks in front of the bathroom mirror in the morning. I'm a really good guy. And if nobody else likes me, I like me. We have all kinds of affirmation exercises that are recommended. And, and you know that, again, that's only going to carry you so far. Because you walk out of your bathroom in the morning and your kid sister is waiting there and she's like, hey, idiot. <laughs> Mom told you to get out of the bathroom 45 minutes ago. You are so selfish. And, and of course, you, don't, you can't admit that to your sister in that moment, but in your heart of hearts, you know that you are. So whatever little self-affirmation speech you just gave yourself about how good and noble and likable you are, man, it's just like shattered in a thousand pieces on the floor. And God's saying, I delivered my son to rescue from all of that insanity, and I raised him from the dead so that you would know that you would believe me when I say you are righteous for Christ's sake. That's what justification is. Look at Romans 4.25 one more time. That little word for indicates that Jesus was raised because our justification was completed. Just a few verses down from this, Romans 5 verse 9, Paul writes, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood and we dare not substitute justified by our obedience. That's important. There's a place for that, but not in the realm of justification. But then he goes on to say, not only that we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Some of you live in the fear of coming judgment. Is God gonna get me? Well, there's an escape path. It's by faith. I, my heart always breaks a little bit when I hear people say, well, you know, one day when I stand before God, I hope I've done enough good to outweigh the bad. Oh, my friend, like, first of all, you, you can't possibly do enough good to outweigh your bad. But Jesus did all the good and took all of your bad. And if you put your faith in him, you can, you can know. You can know today, like so many gathered around you in this room, 
It's not because we're great people. It's just because we've believed God's word. And we know that when we stand before God one day, it's not gonna result in our condemnation. It's gonna be the culmination of this work of salvation that includes our present justification and there's, there's another big word, glorification. That just means God's gonna make us perfect from inside all the way out. And he wants you to have the same confidence. He wants you to walk the same pathway of faith. And that's where we tie it back to Abraham. He's our example. And we, if you go back to verse 18 and then just let your eyes scan over that passage again briefly, in hope, Abraham believed against hope. That's because what he could see with his human eyes didn't make sense to him, but he had the promise of God. So he exercises his faith in the promise of God. Paul goes on to say he did not weaken in faith. He just persisted and, and, and persevered in believing the promise of God. Then Paul writes, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, and I love this phrase, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now for Abraham, specifically that was, I'm gonna give you a son, even though you're 100 years old and your wife is beyond childbearing years. And God said, or Abraham said, well, if God has promised it, I believed it. And then Paul makes this very important point for us, that's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And the same God who promised Abraham that life would come from his dead body is the God who promised that through the death of his son, your sins and mine would be fully forgiven. It's the same God who promised that through the resurrection we can be confident the work is done. And then Paul says in verse 23 of Romans 4, the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. There's a lot more at stake, my friends, in believing or disbelieving the resurrection account than just like was it a historical fact? Did it really happen? Your eternal destiny is bound into this story of resurrection. So where does it leave us? What does the empty tomb mean for us? Well, for those who follow in that path of faith as Abraham and say, I believe, Lord, I believe that Jesus was the sacrifice for my trespasses, that you raised him as a sign that the work of justification was done, and I don't need to seek it anywhere else. Well, two words come to mind, believe and rest. Believe the promise and then rest in it. It, Lay down this never-ending quest to either justify yourself or to get it from other people. And part of that, but I do want to touch on this, release the contempt. Let it go so that you can Hold the promises of God by faith. You don't need to keep expressing self-contempt so others will speak words of affirmation in your life. Let the Lord's mighty declaration, you are righteous for Christ's sake, be the end all. Don't buy into this gobbledygook thinking that says, oh, you gotta learn to forgive yourself and accept yourself. And Biblically, you need to receive God's forgiveness because he's the one you trespassed against. You didn't, you, didn't, you didn't trespass on your own property and certainly release the contempt for other people. Stop, stop creating these standards that not even you can live up to. Consecrate yourself to the Lord. Say it's his law, it's his boundary. I'm gonna live and work and serve in his yard. And that brings us to the last part. Love him with all that you are, love other people and serve him and serve others because he brings you from a place where you are in such deep trouble like literally literally there's hell to pay for trespassing God's law but in this forgiveness 
And in this justification, he rescues you from that. That's no longer your destiny. And now he sets you on a path to eternal life, gives you all the blessings and benefits, the inheritance that, that uh, accompany Christ. And he's like, hey, I'm turning you loose. Go for it. Go for it. Love and serve. Love and serve because of God's forgiveness. Love and serve because you are justified. Love and serve because you've got a whole new identity. Love and serve because you are not the sum total of your failures and, and you are also not the sum total of your best successes on planet Earth. You, your identity in total is created in Christ. And that's the greatest identity anybody will ever possess. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Do you believe? Do you believe that God really did raise Jesus from the dead as he promised long before? Do you believe that Jesus went to the cross to pay the real debt that your trespasses and mine created? Do you believe that? Are you willing to receive God's forgiveness because he says if you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness? Do you believe? Do you believe that in the resurrection it was a mighty declaration by God that you no longer need to fear but you can rest and live in the power that you're justified. My friend, if you try to add anything to that simple message, or if you try to subtract anything from that simple message, you create a different gospel narrative. And God only has one gospel narrative that ultimately saves and rescues. Do you believe it? Father, will you take your word and seal it to our hearts? Continue to illuminate our minds that we may understand the power of and the beauty of this gospel. Would you deliver those who feel the great weight of achieving or creating their own righteousness, whether it be before you or before other people? Would you deliver them from that self-contempt? Would you deliver them from that contempt for others? And would you free them by the work of Christ, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that they would come to know and love and serve you as you intend. We thank you for our Savior. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for his mighty resurrection. Thank you for our justification. Thank you, our God and Father, for all that you have done for us through Christ. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.